Hello and thank you for joining us for this edition of Stratfor Talks, a podcast focused on geopolitics and world affairs from Stratfor.com. I'm Ben Sheen. And I'm Serena Reiser. And we're your hosts for the show. Today we'll be speaking with Stratfor senior Eurasia analyst Lauren Goodrich about Russia's recent parliamentary elections. After that, Stratfor South Asia analyst Faisal Pervez sits down with Stratfor editor-in-chief David Judson to discuss his new column, Stratforium, and the test of being a Rorschach test. And with us now, we have Stratfor senior Eurasia analyst Lauren Goodrich to talk about Russia's most recent parliamentary elections held September 18th. So, Lauren, uh, at the time of checking, it looks like the United Russia Party has achieved a supermajority, not entirely unexpected. But what does this mean now for, for Russia going forward? Well, the Duma results were not exactly going to be a surprise. Everyone knew that United Russia was going to be getting majority. Um, the question was by how much and then how they actually pulled off the elections. Um, the Kremlin really could not blatantly manipulate the elections like they did in 2011. And so instead, they had um, a really smart and savvy campaign going into the elections in which they um, made sure that the results came out to their favor. Now, they did end up getting a supermajority, which is a lot better than um, their previous standing from 2011, in which they had just under half of the state Duma control. Um, This is really going to give them uh, or give the Kremlin a rubber stamp on any very difficult decisions that now has to be made considering the economy. Um, And so the, the, the Kremlin has really been waiting for these elections to take place before it starts making those really unpopular decisions that we're going to start seeing in the next few weeks. So if they didn't blatantly rig the elections or manipulate the elections as overtly as they did in 2011, how did they affect the result? Well, there were quite a few tools that the Kremlin used this time. Um, They ended up changing electoral policies. Instead of um, voting directly for a party, uh, half the votes were single mandate, meaning that the Russian people voted for a single person who happened to be a part of a party or an an independent. Um, That really allowed the Kremlin to put their best and brightest, or at least their most loyal, in very specific regions that they weren't sure they were going to win or not. There were also quite a few big backroom deals with the other rival parties, such as the communists, the liberal Democrats, and just Russia, in which they um, ordered them not to run in certain districts so that the United Russia candidate would win. In addition, the Russian government ended up moving elections up from December to September in order for there to be a lower turnout. Um, The Kremlin did want a low turnout, but they really didn't want it to be this low of a turnout. What the Kremlin was hoping for is to have about half the population um, voting turn out instead of the normal 60 percent of Russians that typically come out to vote. Instead, the Kremlin ended up getting just 30 percent, which is abysmal. So let's focus on that for a second, Lauren. It's interesting how even if Russia has not overtly tried to rig elections, as we've previously seen, they're still trying to do some kind of engineering. But in this case, it backfired. Why do you think the voter turnout was so low this time around? For quite a few reasons. First, it was the rescheduling. Uh, Most Russians are just getting back from vacation and are trying to get their kids ready for school while also not really tuned into the elections because they still have pretty much holiday brain. Um, The second reason why is because some Russians decided to boycott the vote as kind of the way to vote. And then lastly, there's a an apathy deepening among the Russian people in which they see the elections much more as theater than an actual authentic process. So why should they take part in that theater? 
So it sounds like although United Russia did well, it's sort of a compromised victory for Putin. Very much so. So this low turnout really, um, it reveals a shift in legitimacy for the elected government. Um, For the past 16 years, Putin and his party have held power on the back of varying levels of popular support. Its authority will now be solely derived from the centralization of power instead of having power and the Russian people. So one question I have, what does this mean for Russia's legitimacy on the foreign stage? Because clearly Putin likes to present himself as a strong man, uh, a leader, an international figure in politics. And yet it appears that he simply will not allow any form of opposition to flourish under his watch. What does this mean for him as a statesman when people actually look at him and say, well, listen, you've engineered your country to be behind you. Why should we trust anything you say? Well, this really calls into the question of Putin creating a system solely derived on him. Um, It's not derived on popular support. It's not really derived anymore on the kind of clan and faction system he had run over the past 16 years. And it really is Putin being the the ultimate decision maker inside of the country. Um, That really changes how another country works with Russia um, in that you have to only go to Putin. And it also calls into question on how the system can actually be maintained when it is only reliant on one personality. Indeed. And it seems to be a huge amount of pressure for one man to actually hold on his shoulders. And we've seen some notable absences where Putin has not been visible for for a number of weeks at a time, which has led to great speculation by Kremlin pundits and the media. What do you think this means for Putin and his administration going forward? What do you think are some of the challenges he's going to face throughout this year and in 2017? Well, Putin, by the numbers, may have popular support out among the Russian people, but that's starting to diminish because of what's happening with the economy. And now we're seeing Putin become acutely paranoid inside the Kremlin walls, not just outside the Kremlin walls, in which his faction, the same faction that has been with him for decades, um, coming out of the KGB, coming out of the St. Petersburg group, um, Putin is increasingly paranoid that they are going to be arranging against him, almost like a palace coup from within. Um, We've seen quite a few of the major elites do big power moves in which they would have a say on money and who gets to investigate money and corruption and the forces themselves. And so Putin has reacted um, fairly in a, in a paranoid manner, um, in which he has not only created his own military, beholden solely to him, he is now possibly considering creating his own mega ministry, only beholden to him, that would oversee all investigations, all prosecutions, and, and all the forces themselves that go about doing this day to day, in which Putin would be in charge of any major move against any elite, and he wouldn't have to really balance the elites anymore. So we have a presidential, or Russia has a presidential election coming up in 2018. Will Putin seek yet another term in office? Well, he can constitutionally, and not that the constitution quite matters inside of Russia. But um, Putin, whoever does run in the 2018 elections, will be either Putin himself or someone that he chooses as his successor. Um, Last year, Putin made a very interesting comment in which he said he was tired of being president, uh, which makes a lot of sense. I mean, he's been in charge for 16 years um, under enormous pressure. Um, He may want to go out before things get worse inside the country um, as the economy continues to uh, remain in crisis um, before the Russian people take to the streets over things like the economy. Um, And so Putin could instead choose a successor, uh, which in which he can pretty much manage from behind the scenes. 
to where, I mean, he's not president, but he, he still is kind of president for life. And so the Putin system will continue on with or without him. Um, the question is, is how stable can it be without him in that directly front position? So would um, a transition back to prime minister as he did, was in 2008, would that be an option for him or? That would be up to him. <laughs> right. And it's pretty speculative yeah. at this point. But either way, it seems like he's strongly put in place structures to maintain his, his hold on power, either overtly from front of house or from behind the scenes. Very much so. I mean, it is the system now, instead of being the, the vertical system that he created based on clans and networks, um, it is now just the system of Putin. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about this and clearly read Stratfor.com for more Russia analysis. Lauren, thank you again. My pleasure. Hi, I'm Faisal Pervez, South Asia analyst here at Stratfor, and I'm really excited to be joined today by our editor-in-chief, David Judson. We're going to be talking about our new column on our website called Stratforium. David, really glad to have the conversation. Thank you for joining us. Oh, delighted to participate. The first thing is, let's talk a little bit about, I, I like the title that you used. I well, I may have to change it, but um, the, uh, <laughs> for, it works for the moment. Yeah. So, Explain maybe a little bit of where you got this idea for the title, because I think that is a really appropriate point to, to think about really the whole enterprise here of what we're doing with Stratforum. Sure. We were trying to come up with an idea of where we show off ourselves, where we warehouse thoughts and amplifications about who we are. And... We talked about forum, and then somebody came up with you know the the Greek suffix there, emporium, um, a, a lots of interesting things that end with eorium, and that's um, so that's where we came up with stratforium, which is really a goal to. I mean, we're very very good at talking about you know the Chinese Communist Party plenum or the European Parliament or right. you know lots of institutions, but I, I think we've got some work to do to explain to our readers and, and to non-readers for that matter sure. um, uh, more about what the institution called Stratfor is because we're very uh, uh, we're a unique institution uh, and it's that's why I use the the metaphor of the Rorschach test right. because people try and analogize Stratfor to other things with which they may be familiar traditional journalism think tanks academia and as we are none of those things Sometimes um, it leaves people kind of scratching their heads as to what our mission is. And I, and I think we need to do a better job of engaging our readers and communicating to them and demystifying, really, right. uh, who we are. I, I like this because it, it's reminding me of something in that in the times we are lucky to have visitors come to the office, you know, I notice they walk in and there's a moment that I almost always see. And that is this, that when they see the full operation. They see this team of analysts, they see publishing, they see graphics, they see all these people working together in this very dynamic process. There's almost a look of fascination in their eyes that that's how it's done. That's how these people put it all together. And that's one reason why I'm excited about this as a platform, because you mentioned journalism, and I think this is a really a great point to sort of delve upon, because there is this sort of media ecosystem, but... If people ask me as an analyst that what is the difference between, say, what a journalist does and what you do, I like to think of it this way, and I'd love to hear your thoughts. My thinking is that at the end of the day, I think journalists 
they have a very important function. And I think they do, honestly, a lot of the hard work, a lot of times at great personal risk, to bring the information, to bring the story. And ultimately, they're answering the question, what's happening? And when I look at us, we want to answer the question, what will happen? Sure. What's sort of your insight on that and having been in the journalism side and then coming here on the uh, analysis side? Well, I think the fundamental difference is that journalists are a fraternity that work off shared narratives, the story, right? The Arab Spring. Uh, Well, a good example right now would be the tensions between the West and Russia. There's a tendency to analogize to the familiar in journalism, that this is the new Cold War, Right. That journalists like springs, the Prague Spring, the Eastern European Spring, hence the, the Arab Spring. Um, and so there's a, a tendency to kind of sink around those narratives. And you have to it's a subtle kind of process. But journalists almost phenomenologically synchronize around a storyline. There may be perspectives on the storyline, right, left, regional perspectives or, or whatnot. But you got to stick with that storyline or it doesn't make sense. You and I have talked about a friend of mine, uh, Hugh Pope, who wrote a book called Dining with Al-Qaeda. He was for eight years the Wall Street Journal correspondent in the Middle East. And he said in order to get on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, he had to use the term political Islam by the third or second or third paragraph. Right. Or the story would go to the page. Political Islam doesn't really make sense as a concept. <laughs> Um, the, um, but because foreign editors need that terminology, that's become part of the lexicon. You're sort of boxed in and you can't talk about the nuances. At least you could talk about the nuances maybe in an opinion piece or on page three or page four. Right, but right. The, um, so I think that what liberates Stratfor, not only to think about the future, but I think we also think about contemporary events right. in a different way because we're not under the obligation to synchronize with what's in the mainstream media, what we're trying to synchronize with is really our own forecast. This is what we said is going to happen. Is it happening? Is it not happening? I mean, a good example would be, you know, in the early days of the Syrian civil war, the story was how quickly Assad would fall. Right. It will be, you know, weeks, if not days, said the New York Times. And Stratfor did its analysis. And at the time, people threw rocks at us because they thought we were heretical, that we took the position that he's, it's not a moralistic position. We're not saying, you know, Assad doesn't necessarily, you know, deserve to go, that he should go, but he will not go. We didn't take a moral position on it, but we said, we've looked at the numbers and the imperatives of the other actors in the conflict, and he's sticking around. Now, five years later, that forecast was right on, um, and it would be very, very difficult to make that kind of forecast and stick with that um, contrarian narrative in conventional journalism. And I think that's, I don't know if that's helpful, but I think that by declaratively not being journalists and not going to press conferences and not being part of that fraternity, we can participate in the media ecosystem but in a very different way. And I hope, and hopefully I think it's a complementary way. It's not necessarily that we're better or they're better. It's not a value judgment on what the New York Times or the Washington Post does. I read both newspapers every day and, and have tremendous respect for their work, but we're different. 
You know, I think about myself as an analyst, that certainly I want to have an intimate and sophisticated knowledge of what is happening today in the world, and certainly what has happened, what happened in the past. But like you're saying, what I found that's sort of the, the challenge and the thrill of what we do is when, when I'm looking at an event that's happening today, what I'm also trying to do sometimes is determine that is this an antecedent to something that will happen tomorrow? And another thing that I feel maybe can be ambiguous sometimes is the, the focus of what we're doing is not always events, but it's really what are the trends of which events are often manifestations. Sure. I, you know, I mean, I like to say that we're not reporting and focusing on earthquakes. We're focusing on the tectonic plates right. that underline and occasionally make create earthquakes. So right. the media's job is to report on the earthquakes. Um, our job is to report and examine and study um, the underlying forces um, in the geopolitical um, international system that um, create the events. So another thing which I, and we've talked about this before, but I, I frankly find this fascinating, is the role of the narrative in journalism, newspapers, so on and so forth. And this almost highlights in my eyes an interesting tension, which I imagine all publications deal with, and that is between what's important and what sells. I mean, what are people interested in reading about? And there is always, I suppose, a tendency to want to gravitate towards the big shiny object in the room. Sure. Say there's a, a bombing somewhere, uh, you know, something quick and sudden happens that really snatches your attention. There is a degree of reactivity there to which a person has to respond. Um, but I, I, I wonder what your thoughts are on that, that in a sense, we're trying to resist that always. And we're trying to, again, sort of, you know, you look at the ocean, of course, the surface has agitations. But if you dive a little bit beneath, the water's calm. Sure. You know, as a publishing company, publishing in the media ecosystem, um, we have to be responsive to what people want to know about on a given moment. The example I like to use a lot, because I think it, it illustrates the underlying value proposition of what Stratfor does, is Boko Haram. That for 10 years, um, we um, studied Boko Haram, we wrote a lot about Boko Haram, we wrote a lot as um, so we continue to do, about militancies in the Niger Delta, Niger Delta right. as well as in the, This wasn't you know, a um, grab-the-reader's-attention uh, instantly kind of topic. Um, but then when all of a sudden girls were kidnapped from the school right. and Boko Haram became a global media story, we had an archive and a body of understanding that is suddenly relevant. Um, right. So in the ideal sense... It's when the earthquake happens, we've got the uh, deep imagery of the tectonic plate that animated that, that has value at that moment. So I think that, the, that our responsiveness to events um, has to be kind of predicated on that notion right. that, um, yeah, we cannot tell you anything more um, than CNN in terms of what's happening around the event, um, but we can contextualize that event in ways to give people deeper understanding. You know, but obviously, we also think it's important and part of the underlying value proposition to the discriminating reader 
um, that if you want to know what's going to happen next, um, if you want to know what will be in the headlines tomorrow, we can provide you the background and the articles and the analysis and um, a lot of um, rich detail that you won't see anyplace else. Um, so we wind up writing about things that are seemingly obscure. And the reason they're seemingly obscure is because they are, as we sometimes say, hidden in plain sight. So I'm really glad you mentioned context because I look at myself and I was also a reader of Stratfor before I came here. And I think that for me was a tremendous value add to take some event that's happening and then give sort of the depth of perspective because so often what you need to truly judge the significance or rather the insignificance mm -hmm. of an event is to realize what what's happened before. I, I think one thing that I've learned as an analyst is that noise does not equal significance. And so often there is a lot of noise, right? I feel like this might be a good sort of segue into the website because another sort of theme here that you've talked about in the article is that certainly we're in a time of change. And some of the contributions that you've made that have really excited me is on the website, the, the global affairs column, and sort of these different avenues and different ways in which you can tell the story and you can add maybe a fuller, uh, more robust perspective. And so what's sort of on the horizon on that front as far as the website and even uh, maybe columns and so on and so forth? Okay. Well, I mean, we will be um, launching a new website in January that will do a lot of things very differently. Um, probably the most important piece, and I didn't really talk about this in the column, is that while we're a, an intelligence company and a forecast company, forecasting company, our website is really an, of an architecture derived from the news media. So, you know, we have boxes and we write to the boxes and that sort of makes sense because it's based on a content management system. Every right. news web portal has a content management system. Just like in online learning, um, universities have a learning management system. So we were using a, an inappropriate tool for what we do. Um, when we relaunch, we will be relaunching with a forecast management system so right. that our forecasts and our analyses, which we know are organically connected, right. but that's not readily apparent and transparent to the reader that we're, we do a decade forecast, we do a five-year forecast, we do an annual forecast, we do quarterly forecasts, and our analyses reflect updates to that forecast and challenges of that forecast and anomalies. Therefore, there's an organic link there. Right. Uh, so with a website that's kind of constructed around the architecture of, of, of news, um, the we can't really reflect that. So that may seem like kind of an abstract change, but it's a real important one that I think will enable us to do our jobs um, a lot more effectively. And um, and I think we'll actually maybe resolve some of the confusion for people who think we're journalists when we're, we're doing something very different. You, know, you mentioned uh, global affairs. Yeah. Um, I think that while we want to deepen and strengthen and expand our core analysis right. and that kind of resides on top of a, a very, very deliberate and precise methodology to make forecasts. Um, there's still, I think, space that when we're talking about you know, the emergence of new threats in Nigeria or the disintegration of the European Union, to invite perspectives from known and maybe less known experts who do have uh, a dog in the fight, a, a stake. I mean, our, our mission 
analytically is to be very dispassionate right um, and almost distant from the the subject matter but I think that in many cases um, there's value to the readers in hearing from Ian Morris who's the Chairman yes. of the Department of Classics at Stanford University, who has studied the history of conflict, um, even going back to antiquity. Um, I think there's uh, value in hearing. We write dispassionately about terrorism and security issues, but Philip Bobbitt, um, a professor at Columbia University, who has written three New York Times bestsellers yes. on on security and and the relationship of terror organizations and criminal organizations to the constitutional order of the time. And so he sort of charts the way that terror organizations and militancies mirror the nature of the nation state and its operating rhythms at, um, at, at given times of history. So I think it's an, it's an additional layer of insight that can make we ultimately provide to our readers um, that much more integrated and uh, that much more valuable and, and hopefully that much more interesting. This is exciting. I think it's always exciting to be a part of interesting and dynamic changes. Probably what I am most intrigued by in this conversation is I'm really glad that we're finding new and unique ways to reach out to the readers and the listeners. Sure. I mean, I think that's kind of the point of even this conversation, yes. which is one thing I think we've missed the mark on is engagement with our readers. We've kind of been too oriented towards a one-way conversation. We need to do a better job of listening to our readers, understanding what they want to learn from us. And I think as we go forward with new architecture and new ideas and innovations here, um, I think that in many instances, readers will also want to know what readers are thinking. Right, um, yes. And so we need to deepen the sort of sense of community around um, Stratfor and uh, our readership and our memberships. Yeah, I think that it's an absolute privilege to have an engaged and intelligent person want to hear what you have to say. And we get to do that here every day. So clearly a lot of interesting, exciting things going on here. David, thank you for joining us. Really appreciated the conversation. No, I really, really enjoyed that. All right. Thank the, you very the opportunity much. To chat. Thanks. That's all we have time for today. But if you're interested in learning more on these topics, visit us at stratfor.com. We'll include links to some related reading in the show notes. And if you have a question or comment, please leave us a message and we'll try to include it in a future episode of the Stratfor Talks podcast. You can reach Stratfor Talks at 1-512-744-4300, extension 3917. Or you can email us at podcast at stratfor.com. Be sure to visit us online for more geopolitical intelligence and insight into global affairs. Or follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at Stratfor. Thanks again for listening.